The title of the sermon today is The Ministry of Presence, and we're focusing here on the second chapter of Job. Last week, I began a five-week sermon series on the book of Job, and if you didn't get a chance to listen or watch that sermon, I invite you to press pause on this sermon and go back and listen to the sermon from last week. You'll find it on our YouTube channel. Uh, I think I laid the foundation there that I'll build on each week, and I communicated some things that will be helpful to us as we go along through this book of Job. Uh, Maybe pose some things that you haven't thought about or that you haven't considered, and if you don't get that as the foundation, you might miss something moving ahead. Now, I know that some of you out there have trouble following directions and instructions, and so you're saying to yourself about right now, Tommy, you're lucky that I'm watching this week's sermon. I'm not about to stop and go back and try to find last week's sermon and cue it up and watch that and then come back and watch this. So I'm just going to wing it and hope that whatever I missed last week, I'll get sooner or later. And that's fine. I sort of expect that some of you will do that. And so because I suspect that some of you will do that, I wanted to give you just a little bit of a refresher on what we talked about last week. In the book of Job, we have a story about a man named Job who was always trying to live according to God's expectations. While there were some people in the world that were doing what was right and good and pleasing in their own eyes, our boy Job was looking to do what was right and good and pleasing in the eyes of God. Now, this doesn't mean that Job was sinless or perfect. In fact, in Job chapter 13 and 14, we have evidence to suggest that he was not sinless and he was not perfect. But what it does say is that Job sought to so pattern his life in a way that would be pleasing to God. This Job took God and his faith in God seriously. So, uh, in last week's scripture lesson, there was a question raised to God about why it is that Job did what he did or does what he does. And And the question was this to God. Does Job fear you for nothing? We might also add, does Job love you for nothing? Does Job serve you for nothing? Does Job worship you for nothing? And then this person actually suggested that the reason why Job does what he does is because what God gives him in response. He points out, you know, he's got... A wonderful wife and ten great children and all sorts of possessions, donkeys and oxen and camels and sheep and servants. Does Job fear God for nothing or does Job fear God and love God and serve God and worship God because of all the stuff that God has blessed Job with? And he suggested that if you were to take those things away from Job, Job wouldn't fear God. Job wouldn't love God. Job wouldn't serve God. Job wouldn't worship God. In fact, if you take those things away, Job would actually curse God. 
Well, God is so sure of Job's motivation for his reasons for following God. He's so certain of Job's integrity that he allows this accuser the opportunity to put Job to the test. To see how Job will respond. And what happens is disasters. Over and over and over and over again, bad things happen to Job. And they happen in such rapid succession, so quickly, that Job can't even do what we're told in chapter 1, Job always did. And that was constantly offered God burnt offerings, just in case he or his family had knowingly or unknowingly sinned against God. This happened really fast, this disaster that Job experienced. His children were killed in a tornado. All of his possessions were either stolen or destroyed. He was rocked to his core. And we're told that Job grieved greatly, but he did not curse God. He did not do what the accusers suggested that he would do if all the things that he had in his life were taken away from him. What happened certainly brought Job to his knees, but he cried out to God, not with a voice cursing God, but with a voice that said, Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job didn't curse God at all. Job worshipped God. And so it seems as if Job did not fear or love or serve or worship God for nothing. Job, Job worshipped in spite of having nothing. He worshipped the Lord. Well, I regret to tell you in our scripture lesson today, as we pick up in chapter 2, that there is another committee meeting that happens in heaven. If you watched last week's sermon, then you know that I said as a Methodist preacher, I spend a lot of times in meetings, and it does not sound good to me at all that there might be committee meetings in heaven. And I suggested to you, just as a way to see how many Tennessee Vol fans were listening to the sermon, that, that the only thing worse than a committee meeting in heaven would be Rocky Top playing on a loop in heaven. Well, here we are with another committee meeting in heaven. It looks a lot like the first committee meeting in heaven. We don't know everyone that was there, but we know two who were there. God, and just to see how many Alabama fans are watching this morning, Saban, or is it Satan? You know, there's only one letter difference between Saban and Satan. But anyway, Saban or Satan and God, are there together. God asks Satan, what have you been up to? Just like God did in chapter 1. And the, Satan responds just like he did in chapter 1. said, I've been going to and fro all over the world, looking for evidence of disloyalty among your people. And it was at that point that God began to tout his boy Job again. He noted that despite all of the things that had happened to Job that were outlined in chapter 1, that Job still persisted in his integrity. The word used that is translated persisted is to hold firmly even as someone tries to take it from you. 
And what God is suggesting is that despite all of the things that have been taken away from Job, he still persists in holding on to his integrity. His loyalty has not been shaken. Well then, the tempter, the challenger, the Satan, I talked a little bit about why we call him those things in last week's sermon, remembered that, that God had allowed him to do anything except lay hands on Job. And so that's what he decided to use in this argument with God. Well, if you just allow me to touch him, if you just allow me to strike him with something, then our boy Job would curse you to your face. God is still confident in Job. God still believes in Job's motivation for loving and fearing and serving and worshiping. God still believes in Job's integrity. And so God allows Job's accuser and challenger to uh, have his way with him, to touch him, just so long as Job doesn't die. And things go from bad to worse. Now, Job has some sort of very, very painful skin disease. The things that happened to Job in, in chapter 1 caused him deep emotional pain, losing everything that he had. But what happens to Job here in chapter 2 causes him deep physical pain. And we're not told exactly what Job is thinking as this physical pain manifests itself. But we are told that Job goes to the ash heap. And that he actually picks up a broken shard of pottery. And he begins to pick at the sores all over his body. We're not really told what we're supposed to make of this ash heap. There are some that suggest that this ash heap is supposed to be an extreme symbol of Job's grieving and suffering and repentance. I mean, all throughout Scripture, we see evidence of ashes being a symbol of repentance, ashes being a symbol of mortality, and, and perhaps that's what this is supposed to be, an extreme symbolism of the grief and the suffering that Job is now experiencing. But we also know that in Job's day, all of the refuse was burned outside of the city and, and, and that this ash heap may in fact be that trash dump on the outskirts of town. Because once Job would have been diagnosed with this skin disease, he would have been ostracized from his family and from his community, if for no other reason, because they'd be afraid that they would get what Job had, but also because they interpreted his skin disease as some sort of evidence of divine displeasure. And so we're not really sure why Job is on this ash heap or what the ash heap represents. All we know is that while he's on the ash heap picking at his sores, Job's wife makes an appearance. It's the one and the only time that we see her throughout the whole book of Job. And she asks Job a question and then she makes a statement. And the question that she asked Job is, do you still persist in your integrity? Curse God and die. 
Now, because of the comment that she makes, curse God and die, many throughout the ages have interpreted Job's wife as an accomplice of Satan because she wants the same things that the Satan suggests will happen when this physical ailment comes upon Job, that he will actually curse God and die. And I'm not discounting what she says, but I think it's also important to notice when she says this. You see, she goes to Job and she has this conversation. She poses this question and she makes this comment in the midst of Job's pain. His physical pain. And it could be that the reason why she goes to Job at this point and the reason why she says what she says to Job is because she can't stand to see her husband struggling so and suffering so. And there was this belief that if something like this were happening to you, that it must be because of divine displeasure. And, 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 and she knew that if Job were to just to curse God, then maybe God would punish Job by killing him, and at least then his suffering would be over. Now I wish she'd said, hey Job, hang in there buddy, we're going to make it through this, and we're going to make it through this together. But she doesn't say that at all. But that's not enough to vilify this woman. We don't really know what her true motives were by saying what she said. She could have just been giving voice to the kind of the internal struggle that Job was already beginning to feel in chapter 2. A struggle that would become more evident and more vocal as we go throughout the book of Job. All we know is that Job says to her, you're being foolish for saying what you're saying. We can't accept the good that God gives and not be willing to accept the bad. One way that you could interpret that is Job is saying that just because you're good doesn't mean that bad things aren't going to happen to you. And that would serve as an encouragement to you and me when bad things happen to us, when we don't feel as if we've deserved it or warranted it ourselves. Well, these are the last words that Job and his wife speak together. And they're the last words that Job will speak for quite some time. We know that at least until seven days after his friends come, he doesn't speak. And we don't know how long it took for the friends to arrive. But we do know that when Job does speak again, that some of the subject matter that he talks about mirrors what he and his wife have just talked about in our scripture lesson today. He doesn't curse God, but he does curse the day on which he was born. And he doesn't die, but he does look longingly toward his death because then there would finally be an end to his suffering. What we do know is at a certain point, Job's three friends find out what's been going on and they decide that they want to go see him. And so they all meet somewhere together and they carpool over to see Job at the ash heap or donkey pool, if you need to say it that way. Their express purpose in going to see Job that day, according to the text, is that they wanted to comfort and to console Job. And yet, 
We find out as we continue reading through the book of Job that instead of comforting and consoling Job in his grief, they serve to intensify his suffering, not to relieve it. Now, I don't know if that was their intention. I, I think they had noble purposes in going. They probably did really want to comfort and to console Job. It was with great intentionality that they went to see Job. They were risking being exposed to this disease themselves and possibly coming down with it. Uh, they were also at risk of being ostracized from the community because they would become uh, ritually unclean and, and maybe wouldn't be allowed to go back home to their families and their communities. But they go. And they hardly recognize Job when they see him. You and I have had that experience. We've gone into people's homes. We've gone into hospitals where people have experienced some sort of disaster or uh, been overtaken by some sort of disease. And, and when we finally laid eyes on them, we couldn't believe our eyes. We couldn't believe how bad they looked. It was even hard to recognize them. That's exactly what happens to Job's friends when he sees them. They were so shocked at what they saw. The text says that they raised their voices and that they began to tear their clothes in, as a way of showing their grief and throwing dust up into the air, which was a customary way of mourning and grieving during this time. And we're told that they just sat down beside Job for seven days. Seven days is important. Seven days is the length of time that people grieved the death of Jacob in the book of Genesis. Seven days became the customary period of mourning for the Jewish people, what they now call Shiva. And we'll see that these friends of Job don't get a lot right, but they do get one thing right. They go and they just sit with their friend Job in silence. You know, I've had people come to me many times throughout my ministry wondering what they might say to someone that they know and they love is going through a terrible disease or has experienced a terrible disaster. And I've also had people come to me that have had words spoken to them in the midst of disease and disaster, words that they found very, very hurtful that God must have just needed another angel in heaven or it must have been God's will or you can have other children or you can find somebody else to marry. These are things that we say that we probably all said at some time or another and we meant them to be helpful but instead they were hurtful. But these friends just come and they are just present with Job. They just sit with Job in silence. And this is what they get right. Because the most valuable and meaningful type of ministry that you can provide someone in the midst of disaster and disease is just the ministry of presence. Holding a hand putting your arms around someone, 
listening attentively while they bear their heart and soul, their fears, their anger, their frustration, their anxiety. It's not up to me or you to try to explain anything to people in such circumstances, but just simply to listen, to be present with them in the midst of their suffering, to assure them that they are not alone, that God is with them, and that we are with them. You know what I miss the most during this time of pandemic? I miss the ministry of presence. I know that for so many of us that we are about at our wits ends, that the despair and the depression and the anxiety is reaching an all-time high for us. I know that there are people who aren't going to get to experience proms and graduations. I know that there are people who can't currently visit their loved ones because of this pandemic. I know that there are people who have experienced the death of loved ones and haven't been able to grieve in the traditional ways that we have come to grieve uh, the lives and the deaths of those that we love. I know that we have longed for this ministry of presence for someone to come alongside us and just to hold our hand, just to put their arms around us, just to listen silently as we wail and grieve and question and talk about what's going on in our lives. There's a lot that this pandemic has taken from us, but in so many ways it's taken from us the ministry of presence. And yet there are ways in which we can still be present even while we are yet unable to be physically present. And so that's the invitation that I extend for us today is to remember and to value the ministry of presence as illustrated by Job's friends as they just sat quietly with him. And to think about how in the absence of physical presence, we might still nevertheless be present for those who are struggling during these days. And as you and others begin to feel safe about becoming physically present with one another again, how you might catch up and make up for the lost time and being present with someone who's really struggling today. May God give us a great awareness and appreciation of the ministry of presence and to consider how we might be present. Amen.